The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When we look back at the Civil War, we cannot help but know how it's all going to end. But by going to the sources of the time, we can gain some sense of what it must have been like to not know what was going to happen next. Tonight, we'll look at a Confederate surgeon's journal kept in February, March, and April of 1865, with the end of the war closing in, as we can see, but with the future dim and uncertain in his view. We'll take a look through the eyes of Thomas Heard Robertson Jr.'s ancestor. Thomas Robertson is our guest tonight and the editor of the journal on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, where we are part of the University of North Carolina system, but Civil War Talk Radio stands on its own. I'm giving my opinion only, not speaking for UNC system or ECU or anybody else, nor will my guest. We'll all talk for ourselves tonight, as we always do here on Civil War Talk Radio. 
Well, it's fall break here, actually just ended. We get a short uh, two-day break in October each year near Columbus Day, but not necessarily uh, over that holiday. It happened to fall the way this year. Columbus Day is also my birthday, so I notice when it comes around every year with different levels of interpretation as to how one ought to respond to that event 500 and some years ago. Uh, But this year, we had the two days off Monday and Tuesday this week, a chance to read this week's book and catch up on some other uh, leisure reading as well as get ready for classes. Always a welcome time. I think the uh, professoriate in general has done a terrible job of making people aware of what it is we do. We revel in the the guild references like, oh, I've got a uh, a two-two load this year. Uh, people think, what, you work two hours a week each semester? Or you teach two classes each for th- three hours a week? That's all you do is six hours a week. And uh, we really don't do a good job making clear how much goes into that. Uh, a good part of fall break, for example, was spent preparing for this week's classes. But it does mean that the break is extremely welcome when it comes, and it's been nice to relax a little bit. And, of course, to watch college football, which I spent all of Saturday doing. My Michigan Wolverines win again, another shutout. And to keep things on track here on Civil War Talk Radio, I'll point out that the I don't know if we've ever seen such a demonstration of the power of leadership uh, comparing what Jim Harbaugh has done with this year's Michigan team, who are mostly the same players as last year's team under uh, Brady Hoke, who was a great recruiter but not not an outstanding field coach or, or uh, uh, a teacher. And uh, if you look at what McClellan did with the Army of the Potomac and then compare it to what Grant did with the same, essentially the same men, same officers a couple of years later, uh, we see that, that leadership really does make a huge difference in organizations like that. But the turnaround of Michigan's team, it's, it's hard, to, hard to see anything more uh, dramatic in, in college football recent memory. Uh, that's all I'll say about it. This week, Michigan plays Michigan State, always a great rivalry game, and one in which the uh, uh, the outcome is uncertain, but Michigan is playing with house money. We've already had a better season than we hoped, so we'll just see what happens next. Meanwhile, back here, the hometown Pirates lost uh, a game to BYU on the last drive, uh, close but not quite, and the result you're all waiting for. Uh, here it comes, Greenville FC in local recreational soccer tied 2-2 uh, two to two with one of the really good teams in the league. And I was off visiting my daughter at, uh, at her school that day, so I didn't play. Not that that had anything to do with it, but that's, what, um, that's just how it worked out. Um, well... One more business item before we get on to our show. This is a reminder uh, of of thanks, first of all, to everyone who has contributed to the Heritage Hall project here at East Carolina University. And a uh, reminder to those who haven't uh, to please consider doing so. This is a project to build uh, an exhibit within uh, an upcoming building on campus that will relate the history of East Carolina University. 
And while 99.9% .9 of you listening are not pirates yourselves, uh, and I'm not by uh, uh, for an alma mater, it's an important project in terms of Civil War Talk Radio. It will be a demonstration of the importance of public history on this campus. It will uh, help the administration see why we teach some of the subjects we do. And uh, if, if you ever feel like expressing any uh, uh, gratitude to Civil War Talk Radio, this would be the opportunity to do it. Uh, you can do it by sending an email to dyba at ecu.edu, and the person who will answer it will tell you how to direct your contribution directly to Heritage Hall so it doesn't go into the athletic department or even the history department or anything else, but goes straight to this project. Uh, if you want to save a step and forego the tax deduction, you can continue to send uh, contributions here to Civil War Talk Radio through www.impedimentsofwar.org. Uh, no tax deduction for that, but I'm sending all those contributions directly off to Heritage Hall uh, for the rest of this year, 2015. Uh, our show got posted late last week, so not a lot of people heard it between the time it went up and today, so there weren't a lot of new contributions. But I'm urging you and uh, asking you, and I'll only do this once every 12 years, uh, Civil War Talk Radio Fund Drive, please see what you can do to help. $30 would help uh, toward the uh, $3,000 we are trying to raise from this show alone to get Heritage Hall underway. So that's where that stands. Uh, next week, we don't know who's going to be on the show. We have a couple people negotiating back and forth trying to figure out how we're going to do that. Uh, maybe it'll be a fall break day. Uh, keep an eye on our Facebook page to find out who's up. The week after, Wade Sokolowski has uh, his new book, To Prepare for Sherman's Coming, the Battle of Wise's Forks in March 1865. The same era we're going to talk about in just a moment. And following week, November 4th, Christian Semito returns to Civil War Talk Radio with his new book, Lincoln and the 13th Amendment. So, there will be more after that, but we've talked long enough. Let's get on uh, with this evening's show and our guest, uh, Thomas Hurd Robertson, Jr. Uh, Tom, are you there? I'm here. Thank oh, welcome to me. Welcome to the show. Glad you could join us. Uh, you are the editor of Resisting Sherman, a Confederate surgeon's journal, and the Civil War in the Carolinas, 1865. Uh, just published uh, relatively recently, and uh, the, a, an account, uh, well, we'll talk about what it's an account of, but let me ask you, uh, how did you get interested in this topic? What, what brought you to, uh, uh, w was it a, a family thing that got you to interested in the Civil War, or the Civil War caused you to pursue looking for the journal? How, how did you get involved in this? Well, I've always been interested in history because I guess it's in the blood. I, my father was a Revolutionary War scholar and um, was interested in those sorts of things. And my family never throws anything away. Mm -hmm. And I ended up with this little journal, little leather-bound thing about, I don't know, half an inch thick and pretty small. And then looking through it... Uh, 
when I found it in, in a drawer, really, filed away in an old nylon stocking box. No telling how long it had been there, but uh, I read through the thing, and it just, things popped out to me. It was pretty obvious that there was a story there bigger than than just a family heirloom. And uh, I'd been sort of interested in history myself anyway, and so uh, that's how we got to where we did with the diary. Um, we transcribed it, put it in a computer, and uh, and when I say we, I had two sisters who helped me with this project, really beginning about a little over 10 years ago, and we pretty much decided by looking at this little diary that we probably could figure out where the route was actually in the ground, on the ground. So we spent a couple of long weekends over two years to follow at least half of the route. Um, this surgeon covered really 900 miles through four states in about three months' time. That's how we got into the project. I guess I could explain a little further, but uh, maybe we should stop and 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 see what's um, the mo- most burning question. Well, it it it, uh, it flows naturally. Whatever uh, interests you, I'm happy to hear about. Uh, so, you, where was the diary before uh, it, it came to your immediate family's attention? Do you know how? the the chain of possession all the way back to the author Uh, i do and and that's probably the most important thing about this uh, character being uh, an ancestor of mine is the provenance of the diary has been in the family straight from him to me uh, without getting out of the family but beyond that uh, i guess it's not greatly important uh, that uh, the the man is an ancestor of mine Um, he left it to I suppose his wife, to whom he had written it, um, then down through their children, and I ultimately got it from a cousin in Spartanburg, South Carolina, who had put it in this nylon stocking box. Uh, My grandmother looked at it, and she was a genealogist, and she thought, well, maybe we can edit this thing for some sort of publication, and my father was an avocational writer. He started to help her, but... Uh, that never really got off the ground very far, and it went back in the nylon stocking box for another 20 years, I suppose, when we picked it up and, and, and took it from there. Um, the character's name is Francis Marion Robertson. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was no relation to the man he was named for, Francis Marion, the general, the swamp fox of the revolution. Uh, his father merely named him after a famous person. Uh, and Francis Marion thought that was a good idea because he pretty much did the same thing with his five sons later on. So before getting too deep into uh, Francis Marion Robertson, one more question about the journal itself, because it's a fascinating story that this comes to light, uh, uh, comes to your hand, and you're able to bring it to the public this way. What what was the condition of the actual document to the actual journal when you got hold of it was it fragile was it uh, damaged in any way but what did it look like that's really it's really quite good condition it's um, maybe the size of a uh, of a small pocket journal I guess maybe a little bigger than the ones you might buy in a store today uh, it's leather bound uh, hardback 
but sort of flexible hardback. The pages were very good condition. Uh, there, there were no tears in it, or if there, if there were, they were very minor. And it was all written in uh, handwritten ink uh, on one side of the paper, and some of it was sort of faded. Um, I, had, I had to figure out how to decipher the handwriting, although he wrote a pretty good hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, in real life, I'm a, a civil engineer and also a land surveyor, so I've read a lot of old deeds. So I've been pretty good at reading uh, 19th century handwriting. I get that question a lot. How did you know what was in there? How could you read the handwriting? And it, that it, was it is amazing. pretty easy, I'm, actually. Isn't it surprising how many people you know had excellent penmanship in those days? Um, this penmanship was really quite good. It almost makes me wonder if he didn't copy it over uh, after the war. He claimed that he wrote this diary for his wife because he was separated from her for this three-month period of time. Her name was Henrietta. He was obviously quite fond of her. Um, mm-hmm. But there were things that he wrote about in the diary that's pretty obvious to me that his wife would have already known. So I sort of suspect he had a bigger audience in mind when he, even when he wrote it to begin with. That's interesting possibility. It, one does come across that in archives sometimes where a person has, has recopied uh, everything uh, to, from the original. But, but you think, it, would it be your guess that this is probably the, the one he actually wrote at the time? I think it probably was. Uh, his his handwriting and other uh, letters that I've seen have been pretty good and and almost no scratch-outs and mistakes. And the diary has almost no uh, uh, things like that in it. Uh, a few, little, really a few a, little erasures maybe uh, and a couple of uh, strikeouts, but not many. As I'm looking at the cover here, and I see some reproduced pages sort of faded into the background, and it does show... Uh, good handwriting indeed. I'm well, always you struck have the by book that. In, in your hand. Is mm-hmm. that there's actually a picture of it uh, in the intro or in the acknowledgments, and that will help. Uh, Somebody so. would like might like to look at it. It's uh, and it's uh, that's an example of what the penmanship might have looked like. Might have to have a magnifying glass to read it, but you probably could. But it gives you a good idea. Well, it really was I remarkable so. how people in that era wrote uh, as extensively as they did. And, and I am looking at the picture you're talking about. We're going to take a short break now and come back and talk more. We'll talk about what's in this journal, the Journal of Francis Marion Robertson, as edited by our guest tonight, Thomas Hurd Robertson, Jr., The book is called Resisting Sherman, a Confederate Surgeon's Journal, and the Civil War in the Carolinas, 1865. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Thomas Hurd Robertson, Jr., editor of Resisting Sherman, a Confederate surgeon's journal in the Civil War in the Carolinas, 1865. We've been talking about the journal itself, how it came from the hand of Francis Marion Robertson in the Confederate Army in 1865 up to the uh, up to today, up to 2015, and uh, into uh, Tom Robertson's hands, and in turn uh, transcribed and published as a book that we can all read. But what about uh, Francis Marion Robertson himself? Uh, Tom, you point out he's not related to the uh, Revolutionary War hero namesake, but he did have uh, a, a taste for military life, apparently. Is that, is that correct? Uh, yes, yeah, sort of funny. He had a, he had a nickname, uh, Field Marshal, uh, which I think the students at the Medical College of South Carolina gave him because of his military bearing and, I guess, the coincidence of his initials. Uh, Francis Marion was... Um, from Abbeville, South Carolina, and uh, was a neighbor of John C. Calhoun, the Secretary of War. And um, the Secretary of War appointed him to West Point in about 1822. So he went there, didn't graduate, though, uh, because he wasn't very good at French. And you might ask, why would that matter (laughs) Uh, if you're going to military school? And the reason is, is because all the military textbooks were written in French at that time. So hmm. at any rate, uh, he didn't graduate, and there's maybe more to that story than we've been able to determine, but he, he came back uh, to the South, and by that time his father had moved to Augusta, Georgia, and um, so he got interested in medicine here somehow or another, uh, and Augusta's where I live. 
So he went to the Medical College of South Carolina and graduated from there in, in, in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, managed to pick up a wife uh, about that time and uh, uh, established a medical practice, uh, which he did pretty well at, I think. Uh, commanded a, 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 a group of um, militia, a company of militia in the Second Seminole Indian War down in Florida, um, and then ultimately ended up uh, practicing medicine in Charleston, uh, a larger port city. Maybe that's because his wife was from there. And um, was pretty prominent there until the time of the Civil War. By that time, he was probably 50 years old um, and entered the medical service there. And they gave him a, a commission as a surgeon, which meant he was about the equivalent of a major of cavalry, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. and uh, put him on the Board of Medical Examiners. The South had some difficulties with physicians about that time because at the beginning of the war, there were plenty of doctors that wanted to volunteer their services to the Confederate Army. In fact, the entire medical college of South Carolina shut down for the period of war, and all the faculty members went into the service. But there were some problems because although doctors might have been able to cure things like the common cold and other matters like that, they didn't know anything too much about gunshot wounds and those sorts of things. So there was a lot of incompetency. So they established, uh, I say they, the medical department established these Army Medical Examining Boards, and there were four or five of them in the Confederacy. One at Charleston uh, was the one that Francis Marion was assigned to, and he was the recorder of the board, uh, the secretary, I guess you would say. And they examined doctors entering into the service and also uh, soldiers for promotion from assistant surgeons up to surgeons. So there he was, uh, in basically in hospital duty and in, in some, uh, some combat positions, particularly on Morris Island at Battery Wagner. He was there in the, at the time of that bombardment um, and um, was also uh, there at the time it was time for Charleston to be evacuated because Sherman was coming, or actually had already come, was headed up toward Virginia, and Charleston was about to be cut off. So that's when the diary begins, uh, at the time when the evacuation occurred in February of 1865. So he served throughout the war. You, you point out that he's, his job is to essentially vet the qualifications of of other doctors, uh, but the whole field of medicine obviously is not uh, uh, was obviously not at that time what it is today. They they knew things quite a bit differently. Uh, one thing you you mentioned in the book is the use of anesthesia that uh, Dr. Robertson was was aware of this. Uh, that contrary to mm-hmm. what we think, uh, it did get used. It did did he actually? Was he one of the first to to use this technique in the United States? Uh, he was, um, and he was performed an operation on a child in 1850 using chloroform uh, as a anesthetic and removed some sort of a stone from inside of this child, and uh, was the first recorded uh, notion of doing that in in the state. 
don't know how that stacks up in the in the nation, but it's pretty early. Mm-hmm. And so by the time of the war, chloroform and ether as anesthetics were very widely used. And in fact, although we see the movies where the, the cowboy bites the bullet or gets a drink of liquor right before the surgeon gets the knife out, that really didn't happen in the Civil War very much. Uh, most operations occurred under anesthesia of some sort. Well, that's a, a small relief to know that. Uh, <laughs> there are other. Um, I'm just interested in in the the state of medical science that Dr. Robertson was familiar with. Uh, you mentioned also he had his theory about yellow fever. Uh, what what? He was really interested in in that. In fact, uh, one of the. Uh, things that he did um, was when he was in Augusta, uh, he was uh, appointed as as one of a three-doctor committee to find out about what was causing this yellow fever epidemic in 1839, and that was... There's some suspicion that uh, the the railroad, one of the first railroads in the United States from uh, Hamburg, South Carolina, opposite Augusta, down to Charleston, maybe allowed the mosquitoes from their uh, their epidemic there in Charleston to be transported to Augusta. Uh, and but they didn't know anything about germs at that time. They didn't know anything about the fact that these little mosquitoes were vectors that actually took the disease from one person to another. But they were able to to determine. A sort of a geographic analysis of where people got sick, and they were pretty close together. So uh, Dr. Robertson and some others uh, published a report. They thought it was rotting garbage that caused that. Uh, but he was pretty sure that it wasn't contagious, so uh, he, uh, for whatever reason, took some of the black vomit from one of the patients and put it in a capsule and ate it and basically <laughs> didn't get sick, so he was able to prove that that it wasn't contagious that way. Well, that seems that a little, a... Maybe, maybe, sort of, maybe sort of stupid to me, but that's, <laughs> that's what he did. He certainly had the confidence of his convictions to, uh, to do something like that. <laughs> that's right. That on a limb, pretty far. That's right. So... Um, so he ends up in the war taking this medical knowledge with him. Uh, you mentioned his wife. He also had sons who participated in the war. Could you tell us uh, uh, about the rest of his family? He, he had five sons in Confederate service, and, and maybe a sixth, as, as we've learned in the in the book, which we're not quite sure who that would be. It might have been an adopted boy, but at any rate... They were all in the army, and, and initially I was not going to have as large a, of a prologue or introduction to this diary. I was merely planning to just introduce the characters that would recur in it, but after I looked into the service of each of these sons, I realized that each of them turns up in a pretty important turning point in the, in the fighting that occurred near Charleston and around the harbor there, so... From the Star of the West at the very beginning to the bombardment of the of Fort Sumter itself, Battery Wagner uh, and 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 the evacuation. So, and even the bombardment of Charleston itself, uh, where uh, of the federal of the federal bombardment there, the second shot of 
that uh, swamp angel that was on Morris Island fell in Dr. Robertson's yard. Hmm. So I, I sort of expanded that so that could give the background uh, of the war in Charleston and what those people had to endure too, using these sons as examples of the of what happened. Well, I mean, it also shows how committed he was to the uh, Confederate cause that, that his entire family, all, all these uh, young men were involved in it and, and risking their lives. So uh, when the diary opens, as you say, we're in February of 1865, the uh, Confederacy is reeling. Uh, Sherman has marched through Georgia, is now... Uh, Captured Savannah, ready to head up into, is heading into South Carolina. Lee and Grant are still locked together outside of Richmond. Uh, and again, from the from our vantage, we know this is the end game. But one of the things that really comes through in this diary is how uh, I don't, confident might not be the word, but how how. Uh, you know, determined and, and certain the, the doctor is that, uh, uh, that this is going to continue. That he, he he's not giving up by any means. There's no there's no despair in this book. There there really is not. Uh, and and of course, from uh, just because of his being a doctor, wouldn't really make him much of a, a military expert, um, if you call it that. Uh, but the West Point background caused him to be able to comment a little bit on what the Confederate commanders did and didn't do. Mostly he thought they delayed too long in making decisions uh, and let Sherman get the upper hand. And uh, Because it, it, when the evacuation occurred, it, it really was a race um, with between the Confederate Army and Sherman to uh, some of the points in Upper South Carolina where there were key bridges and so forth that needed to be crossed and so that the army was trying to get between Sherman and Virginia and at least uh, slow him down some. Sherman had 60,000 men, uh, which was kind of hard to deal with when uh, General Hardy only had uh, 10 or 10 or 15,000 uh, troops himself. Now, the uh, thing also, that really uh, just would comment that um, uh, when I learned history in school, when I was a a lad, we talked about the march to the sea, and then Sherman gave the city of Savannah to Lincoln as a Christmas present, and that was that. Mm-hmm. But really, I sort of learned through this little exercise that I've done that the march through South Carolina really was more of a of a of a, of a um, punitive march than the march through Georgia was, even though we don't hear that much about it. Well, I think that's right. That Sherman, you know, he, he and his men felt South Carolina was the the home of secession, and they were going to make make the state pay for it. Um, one thing you mentioned: Hardy only has ten, fifteen thousand against Sherman's much larger army. Uh, and the one factor that slows Sherman down, maybe more than the Confederate military, is the weather. Uh, that's true. As in as in twenty fifteen. Uh, 1865 was a year of rain in South Carolina, and I should have asked. I hope everything is okay where you are, uh, flooding wise. Uh, it is, but I'm uh, I'm only 60 miles away from disaster. I would say that's still going on in Columbia. So. 
1865. But in those times, uh, there were really there were uh, three uh, floods in the early 1865, and one of them is one of the largest floods on record. It's published in the U.S. Geological Survey's books about floods, and so the lowlands of Lower South Carolina had these wide, swampy floodplains that didn't take too much water to to cause them to be underwater. And probably that weather uh, slowed Sherman down more than the Confederate resistance did. So that, uh, I mean, it affects both armies. Uh, I I recall hearing uh, uh, various people, I think John Shai among them, who've made the argument that uh, weather is not a good argument for military outcomes. Uh, The winter weather that stopped Hitler in 1941 was just as cold for the Soviets, and the the floods were just as deep for Hardy as for Sherman. But Hardy's not trying to go somewhere. He's trying to stop Sherman, and Sherman's trying to get somewhere. Well, he so, is, and when, and when he leaves Charleston, he's actually leaving by railroad. Mm-hmm. So so he, he could get, I mean, I'm sure the railroads were flooded too, but but that was a lot easier than going with horses and mules and wagons over muddy roads and 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 bridges through the swamp. So, as soon enough, once they got to Upper South Carolina, I think mm-hmm. it was more even uh, on on how the weather might have gotten into that. Now, Robertson's first the first few uh, days or weeks, even that he describes in the journal, are are spent almost leisurely. It sounds like he's he's. He doesn't have a a duty station. He's trying to figure out where to go. So it's not like he's he's up to his elbows performing amputations all day. He's he's sort of visiting with people and trying to figure out what happens next. Is that a fair description? Uh, it is. And really, from the just step back a little bit on, on the book, it's really mm-hmm. it's really not um, just a military history. Although the military mm-hmm. movements and what have you are a backdrop, but it is. Is it, it is this doctor's take, I guess, on stories of people who were suffering uh, along the way under the boot of war, you might say. Mm-hmm. And it talks about a lot about their everyday lives and you know their food and drink and music and what they liked and were afraid of and and uh, and and all surrounded by the Sherman uh, Army movements. Now, just a word about the doctor himself, and maybe this doesn't come through explicitly in the book, but he as a staff officer on this medical board was really not attached to any one unit uh, Mm -hmm. like a regular surgeon or assistant surgeon would be in a regiment. So when, and, and also at that time, all physicians in the whole Confederate Army reported to one man, and that was Samuel Preston Moore, the Surgeon General in Richmond, which seems awfully um, inefficient. But, I mean, of course, they don't have communication like we have today. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and if you, if a doctor moved from one station to another, he had to get permission from the Surgeon General to do it, and so he had to either send him a telegraph or, or send him a letter and wait to hear what happened. And so there's a little bit of that that goes on here uh, in the diary as well. So 
I'm, I'm going to step in. We're going to take another short break and come back and find out more about uh, Francis Marion Robertson. We'll be back in just a moment. Our guest is Thomas Heard Robertson, Jr. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Tom Robertson, editor of Resisting Sherman, the Confederate Surgeon's Journal, and the Civil War in the Carolinas, 1865. It's the journal of his... Ancestor Francis Marion Robertson, a Confederate uh, medical staff officer. And, Tom, you mentioned as we were going out that really what this journal largely concerns itself with is uh, uh, Francis Marion's interactions with civilians along the way as the Army makes its way from Charleston up into North Carolina. Uh, There's a lot of discussion of food uh, that... uh, He's always, you know, looking for the next meal, and I was sort of surprised how, how often he finds it. He, he's not living on just hardtack, but he seems to be able to find people who are generous with their supplies. They are, and in fact, a lot of them wouldn't take any money for for what the the, the meals that they were given or the lodging that they that they provided. When, when we made the trip uh, to retrace the diary, it was really quite mm-hmm. amazing that we could find houses and identify places physically where he stayed. And they're still there 140 or 150 years later. And the uh, story is still alive in the minds of those people that we met along the way. People were very interested in what we were doing. 
Of course, mm-hmm. it's been a long time. That was back in the early 2000s, and the book has taken a pretty good while to re- see the light. But uh, those landmarks are really amazing uh, along quite the, pretty much the whole route. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also wondered how he would have known how far he traveled. He would say, for example, we traveled 19 and a half miles today. Well, how would he have known it that precisely? But right. we even found some stone milestones uh, engraved with mile markers, such as we would have on the interstate highway today, uh, still there uh, after all that time. Wow. And there's some wonderful photographs in this book of, of both the miles markers and the houses uh, that have survived since uh, 1865. Uh, one food item you mentioned, uh, of which I had not heard before, is a crab lantern. Uh, tell our listeners, what's a crab lantern? Well, crab lantern is uh, is really similar to what we would get from McDonald's, a fried pie. But it's really not fried, it's baked. And, and, it, and it's uh, a round, uh, let's say a half moon shaped pastry with uh, oranges and with apples inside. It's really quite good. We were able to reconstruct a recipe from this crab lantern. It looks like a blue crab shape of the shell and has little slits in it to let the steam out. And they look like the slits on a tin lantern that had a candle in it about those times. Uh, I guess this was a snack that one could get from most anybody. He paid a dollar for one of them, and he didn't think it had more than a teaspoonful of apples in it. But he was hungry, and so he was glad to get it. Well, things were, were getting short for the Confederacy there. When I, you have an illustration of them photograph, and I first thing I thought of was the uh, hostess pies that uh, you can get at a convenience store, or used to be able to. I haven't looked in a long time for that. Um, well, I think they, they, look, they do look similar to that, and, they're, and uh, we were able to reconstruct a, a recipe that's a serviceable facsimile, I would say, and so we uh, if anybody would like to do some cooking, they can use that recipe and make some look just like the picture in the book. That's right. It's, it's in the book. The uh, Another thing that struck me about Robertson's experience, as I guess as a staff officer, is that he, he, he he's pointed out he, he's not attached. He ends up trying to go to Richmond. Uh, to the one officer he reports to is in Richmond. But he's able, therefore, to just have a conversation with General Hardy, who's commanding the whole army. And he writes in the journal, it makes it sound like he just sort of walked over and said, so, General, what's, what's going on? That's right. Uh, yeah. it, it, uh, now, some of these uh, officers, uh, you might, you could be pretty sure he knew at West Point, uh, Joseph E. Johnson, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about General Hardy, but they obviously had been acquainted before, I think, because they've, he speaks to them. Uh, in sort of personal terms, it seems like. But I'm sure that as they saw this unattached officer coming, when they're trying to do some pretty major commanding of the Army, I'm sure they wanted to get rid of him. I mean, <laughs> but General Hardy said, well, you, you just have to go and report to General Joseph E. Johnston in, in Raleigh, so which he dutifully does. And then Joseph E. Johnston says, well, you need to see your commanding officer, the Surgeon General. So he ended up going by rail to Richmond and 
We was there two weeks before the burning of Richmond. Managed to get out uh, with his pay. Uh, and, and one thing I learned that I didn't realize, uh, he was able to send a letter to his wife from Richmond that would go by the flag of truth boat through New York. And he hoped that it would get to her. I just didn't have any notion that you could send a letter from the south to the north uh, during the war, but apparently you could. I, I don't know a lot about that. It's a very interesting uh, uh, interesting situation. You mentioned, uh, I think Colonel Old has mentioned once, the, uh, the commissioner for the uh, exchange of prisoners uh, mm-hmm. cartel. So, you know, there certainly were exchanges of communication between north and south during the war, but not... Uh, uh, but I, 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 it's something worth looking into. What was mail service? What what level of mail service was available? Um, uh, I, I was not. I just was not aware that there could have been any. But so that yeah, was yeah, sort of a revelation. I thought. Well, it, it it is to me too. I'm gonna have to look into that. The uh, another thing that that you mentioned when he goes to Richmond that that I found interesting is being the the West Pointer that he is. He. Uh, offers his own theory as to how the Confederacy could have done much better strategically uh, with the argument that they should have moved the capital after the Peninsula Campaign while they hold the upper hand uh, so it's not like a retreat, say, having beaten you, McClellan, now we're going to move all our archives and government to somewhere safer and, and we'll just defend Richmond like Nashville or Memphis. Uh, on the surface, it makes a lot of sense, and uh, my students always are, you know, always want to know why why they put the capital right on the front line in 1861. But this was one of the few times I've seen the argument really spelled out by someone during the war that they never should have put the capital or left it in Richmond. Uh, well, it's interesting you say that. I, I've certainly noticed that he commented on that, but I really hadn't paid too much attention to that. Uh, certainly, if the capital in a little, little bit more remote location, it, the 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 capital might have ha- not have had such a symbolic uh, prize put on mm-hmm. front it that it did. Maybe. Well, well exactly. Well, it distorts the Confederate strategy that they have to hold uh, in in the middle of Virginia. If the capital were somewhere else, say in Atlanta, then they could have diverted troops from Virginia to the Western Theater in 63 or 64 uh, without fear of losing the capital. Indeed, they'd have to do it to protect it. But Well, it might it, have allowed them to consolidate the troops a little bit more than they were able to east and west. Exactly. Uh, so, so it's an interesting argument that, that he makes. Um, well, one thing I... I Sort of reluctant to bring up now that I live in North Carolina, but I'm I'm not a North Carolinian. <laughs> uh, tell us, what does Robertson think about the women of North Carolina? Well, you know, he had a little disdain for North Carolina. Um, I mean, I think maybe a lot of disdain, <laughs> and it may have stemmed a bit from South Carolinians being a little snobbish. Um, he, he sounds that way a little, and in, not only that. Um, you know, North Carolina, as probably all your listeners know, was one of the last states to secede, and it had a lot of Unionist sympathies still alive there. And there was a lot of, uh, of maybe um, stone throwing uh, about the Confederate government and some 
unrest. But all that led, I think, General Sherman to think that North Carolina might be more receptive to him and maybe even have some people come over to the federal side. That mm-hmm. didn't turn out to be the case uh, because they were not uh, disloyal to the southern nation, even though they might have had some uh, uh, unhappiness there. Uh, but uh, Francis uh, enters into the state, and there were, was a lot of um, tobacco chewing going on. And that went from women and men together. And so he, since there weren't very many men around there, the, he was pretty amazed that women would, which whom he called dippers, uh, would uh, talk and chew tobacco at the same time and, and then... Uh, as he say, masticate, and then <laughs> with um, the same grace that a man would, uh, with a masculine squirt, he calls it. Yeah. <laughs> Another time he had a he had a woman uh, who had was putting him up for the night, and he thought she had a tumor in her cheek, and was about to comment on that, maybe examine it when it shifted from the left side to the right side. <laughs> Fortunately, he hadn't said anything about it, and that saved him an embarrassing discussion, I think. It was just a big just chew a of, tobacco. of tobacco. Right. Well, that, 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 not what the ladies of South Carolina uh, typically did, apparently. He also uh, comments unfavorably on the, the landscape, the, the sterility and, and unimproved nature of North Carolina, uh, and and he he especially leaves uh, no stone unturned at Carthage, North Carolina, which I've never visited. I'm, I'm it's a few hours from here, I'm sure. Uh, well, I, I visited of, Carthage, and it's a pretty nice little town. Uh, although it's it's sort of sleepy, I would say it looks like a courthouse town. Um, he, he that was where he first encountered Dippers and 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 the men. Uh, who he thought should be in the army were around drinking applejack uh, mm-hmm. instead. But uh, in in retracing this diary, I think that was not a discussion so much of what North Carolina's landscape might have looked like in general. Some of that land is really barren, and the reason uh-huh. it is is it's it's just part of the sand hills that really extends along the fall line of the whole east coast it's so it's very unfertile soil on some of the high ridges and deep sand and it's dry and so i mean i think it looks pretty much like he described it even today you know because mm-hmm. some of those areas are not are not highly occupied by people even now no well this here in eastern north carolina it is not the uh, a, a wealthy part of the country by any stretch of the imagination uh, based on, and part of that is the agricultural circumstances and the quality of the soil, uh, at least at a distance from the coast. So as the war comes to an end, you point out he, he gets to Richmond, he leaves Richmond uh, shortly before the evacuation of that city. And as somebody who's written about Abraham Lincoln, I'm always curious to see references to uh, Lincoln and, and Lincoln's assassination in, in Southern writings at the time. But there's nothing, unless I missed it, there was nothing either about Lincoln's death or about Lee's surrender. 
uh, or at least it wasn't. If it was in there, it was not a big deal. Did it really? He really didn't mention that either. Of those of those circumstances, although uh, he did talk, he did quote uh, some things about Lincoln's policies uh, in the mm-hmm. terms of uh, uh, power, plunder, and extended rule, and um, I included a little. A sidebar about that, and he mentions nothing about uh, about General Lee's surrender, um, which was but he must have passed by. He was in the midst of nursing this uh, back to health. This one of his sons, who he had encountered by, quite by accident in Greensboro, North Carolina, who, having been shot at the Battle of um, Averettsboro. Mm-hmm. But but he must have. But known he was uh, on his, you know, toward the end of his diary, he passed through. Newberry, South Carolina, on the day Lincoln was shot, and from there to the end of the diary, which is only a few days after that, there's not a word about Lincoln in there. And unfortunately, we have time for no more words tonight. We've run to the end of our hour. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.